My name is Enrique Cerna. I'm the senior correspondent for CrossCut. Thank you, PSTIS 9. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, really want to welcome you to this conversation, obviously one that's very timely at this time uh, as we are coming down. The clock is ticking on the fate of dreamers here in the country. And so this con conversation is going to be a very timely and important one. Uh, let me introduce our panelists, and I'll have them come on up as I, I do so. Bob Ferguson is Washington. Welcome. Yeah. Nobody likes him. So he is our state's 18th attorney general. As the state's chief legal officer, he is committed to protecting the people of Washington against powerful interests that don't play by the rules. That means he sues people. He's the son of a former uh, Seattle. Oh. And, next person, the son of a uh, former Seattle peace police officer, John Carlson, is here. <laughs> All right. John hosts a uh, morning drive show on AM 570 KVI. He's long been involved in Washington state politics, representing a conservative voice at times. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez is here. Carlos, come on up. He is a graduate of Seattle University. He earned his degree in public affairs. As the former student body president, he was vocal about issues related to immigration, affordable housing, and homelessness. And I understand that he's got family that came out here to be a part of the audience. Are they here? Mom, dad, brother, all right, welcome them. From Atlanta, they came all the way from Atlanta? Wow, nice, welcome, good to have you here. Well, and enjoying the rain? I hope you are, yes. All right, and finally, our moderator, uh, my colleague at uh, Crosscut and KCTS 9, Lily Fowler. Come on, Lily, walk on up here. <laughs> Lily is a staff writer at Crosscut. Before, before coming to the Northwest, she worked as a producer for the uh, national PBS program, Religion and Ethics News Weekly. She previously worked as a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. She's written widely about religion and immigration. Uh, we also want to take uh, just a short time to acknowledge our sponsors, without whom none of this would be possible, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our race and social justice track sponsor, the Seattle Foundation. Give them a round of applause for being our sponsors. And one last thing, we also want to note that following the conclusion of this panel, there will be a lunch break before doors open again at 1.30 for the next session. We encourage you to visit the food trucks and our heated tent in the quad or one of the local restaurants surrounding the campus. And with that, Lily, take over the conversation. Good conversation, let's have. Thank you, Enrique. Okay, so uh, we are here to talk about DACA, obviously, but I want to start out with you, Bob. Uh, I've kind of lost track, so how many times have you sued the Trump administration, <laughs> and have you sued anyone today? Uh, well, we've uh, we filed 20 lawsuits, and uh, we have a, a 21st that's been approved just waiting to get it filed. So, uh, and I guess what I'll say is that uh, two things. One, when we filed the first one, we were the first state, of course, to file a lawsuit against the administration exactly a year ago on the first travel ban. 
look, in making that decision, if someone had told me there'd be 19 more lawsuits in the next year, we, we, we would have laughed. That was not part of the plan by any stretch, but circumstances dictated certain events. And number two, you know, I'm proud to report that uh, of those 20 cases, uh, six have been decided. We've won all six. We haven't lost a case yet, so we have a good record. So I'm, I'm curious, what makes you uh, care about these issues? I mean, I was at the press conference when you announced the lawsuit regarding DACA, and you actually got kind of emotional at one point. Why is that? Well, uh, you know, um, here's the thing, right? That, that the law is not some abstract notion, right? I, we talk in our office all the time. I tell my team all the time. Behind every case that we're involved in, there are people who have lives or businesses that are going to be impacted. Whether that's a case that's on the front page of the paper, like a Trump lawsuit, or a more obscure case, that the law impacts people in deeply, deeply personal ways. And uh, some cases that's more apparent or more evident than others. Um, so when it comes to DACA, look, you're talking about folks you know, like Carlos and others who to say their lives would be completely upended uh, if those protections are removed would be a significant understatement. Um, or the travel ban, um, the ability of folks to travel, or to return to the state of Washington. These are folks who were students at our colleges and universities who are simply trying to come home. They're abroad and were turned away at our airport. So look, it's uh, um, sure I get emotional about that because you realize there's a lot at stake in these cases. And look, when I get home today at 2.30 today, there's a family coming to visit uh, from Iraq. Uh, there's four kids in the family. The, uh, there's a child who's my daughter's age who wrote me a letter about the travel ban and what it meant to her. In her letter, she wrote, uh, because you stood up, I can be here. And so her family's coming by. They're having a play date with my kids uh, today at 2.30 and, uh, and have a chance to meet them in person. And that's, you know, so it's not some abstract thing for me. Like I, you know, we, and that's the case for the whole team. That's why they put in long hours. And, and that, that actually, I think, is a good point to uh, hear from uh, Carlos because... Uh, one of the reasons we wanted him here is uh, because he is somebody who's been impacted by DACA. So, Carlos, can you tell us about where you grew up and, and how you ended up in Seattle? Sure, yeah. I grew up in uh, Marietta, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, and I spent most of my life there. Um, came to the U.S. when I was three years old from Mexico, and again, spent most of my life in Georgia. That's where I grew up. Um, and I also moved around a little bit, North Carolina and, and Florida, and then back to Georgia is where my parents are at now. And um, yeah, that's a little bit about like my, my experience in the South is, I guess, very different than, um, uh, than a lot of other people. But as a person of color living there and as an undocumented immigrant, it was very hard for me to talk about immigration or to talk about my status or lack of my status because um, it wasn't safe for one. I couldn't talk to, to my friends or anyone like, uh, like I do now. I couldn't be open in public about my status like I am with you all in this room right now in Georgia. And so I think that's you know, a little bit of, of the like, perspective of like, how something like legal status can impact just the way you interact with other people. And, and it does every single day. And last year, um, when I was student body president and I resigned, um, part of the reason was because of the, the political climate and, and it took a toll on my health and academics and all these other things. So I wanted to take better care of myself to, to do the things that I'm doing now. And uh, yeah. So and how was it on campus, uh, you know, as an undocumented uh, student and you were student body president 
and it's a, it's a Catholic university, so and the Catholic Church itself has come out very strongly for the program. Uh, but was there among students was there a lot of disagreement about the program and whether it should con continue? I think there was. I think for me, there was no community for me to really. There was a community of undocumented people on this campus, but we did not connect as well as we could have. And I think part of it was fear of, of just people who didn't want to say what their legal status was. And, uh, and I, didn't make an, I didn't push people to tell me what their legal status was if I wasn't sure or any of that. Um, and again, it goes back to safety. Um, but the reason I came to Seattle University is because of the Jesuit Catholic values that, that, we, that are taught here at the school. And Jesuit institutions especially are very friendly towards undocumented students. And um, I think the climate in general is just very different when you have no community to really interact with or, or talk about these things. Um, but I did have some people that, that did come up to me that we would share our stories and, and confided in me for those things, um, but they themselves were not uh, open or public about their, their status. Okay, well, I wanna move just to some of the uh, legal aspects of, of, of this. I mean, uh, Bob, you, there was a lawsuit, and, and this, the, the DACA issue has been moving so quickly that you know, things have changed from even just from, say, the beginning of the month to now. So how many lawsuits exactly are there involving the program? Because yours isn't the only one, right? And is this likely to be resolved through the court system? Uh, well, two questions, or I guess maybe I'll take the second one first. Is it likely to be resolved through the court system? I mean, is, there's two tracks. There's a, a legal process. There are lawsuits out there, two of which I'll just highlight very briefly in a moment. And then, of course, there's the, the political one through Congress and whether or not Congress will um, pass a law that uh, provides protections for Carlos and the other 800,000 dreamers in our country um, by March 5th. Um, you know, it is my hope that Congress acts, um, but... In filing the lawsuit, you know, I have to say that I didn't have great confidence that would happen. Um, so um, whether there will be ultimately a political solution or not, I can't speak to that. I'm not the expert. Others, you can track that more closely. You know, John will have an opinion on that as well. What I can say on the legal side is uh, two cases in particular where state AGs are involved um, in California. Uh, there is a decision by a district, federal district court there to uh, essentially stop the administration from allowing protections for DREAMers to end. Uh, we had an oral argument in New York. We joined with New York, Massachusetts, a host of other cases, a host of other states, rather, and just had our oral argument for a federal judge in New York just a few days ago, which we feel went very well. One of our attorneys did the oral argument there along with an attorney from the New York AG's office. And so right now, in that decision in California, and we are optimistic about the case in New York, that injunction is in place, but of course, cases can be appealed. It could ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court out of that case in California, uh, the federal government is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review that. We'll see what happens. So just like the political situation is fluid, the judicial, the legal process is fluid as well. But right now there is an injunction in place uh, on uh, the DACA, a uh, rescission of the DACA program. Okay. And, and John, I want to I wanna hear from you. I mean, what, um, what are your thoughts about DACA? What is your objection to the program? Let's start there. Well, there's what you do, and then there's how you do it. And throughout most of his, in fact, all of his first term, President Obama uh, tried to get a DACA bill through the Congress, was unsuccessful. And when he was pressed to simply issue an executive order or take executive action, he said, 
on 12 occasions. I don't have the authority. I just can't do this. I'm not a king. I'm a president, et cetera, et cetera. And then after he was reelected, he somehow found the executive authority, not through an executive order, but through executive action to create the DACA program. Personally, I think that a policy like this should be made by the people's representatives. I think that DACA should be a bill that goes through the House, goes through the Senate, and is signed by the President. Um, and I hope there is legislation uh, for this that comes out within the next 30 days or so. What I'm not sure of is whether the March 5th deadline uh, set by the president uh, is going to be affected by the injunction. And whether if they don't have a bill by March 5th, they'll simply keep working the process. Bob, can you speak to that? Well, the legal process is fluid. Right now, the injunction is in place. But of course, there's an appeal on that injunction, so things could change prior to March 5th. Uh, the courts will have their say ultimately on that. Um, and uh, you know, look, when it comes to uh, you know, presidents over the years, uh, to John's point earlier about using executive orders, executive action, hey, they continue to use that. President Trump did that with the first travel ban, right? And so that didn't work out so, so well. You're, 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 uh, but it didn't. It didn't work out only because I filed a lawsuit against him. It's the only reason. And 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 the and the travel ban when it was first signed was popular in our country, and so but it took legal action to stop it, and so. You know, I'm comfortable with our checks and balance system. I have a certain role. I'm often asked, hey, Bob, can you do something about X issue or Y issue? And I say, look, if it's not illegal, that's not my, that's not my lane, right? You gotta talk to your legislators about that, your members of Congress. Everybody's got a role here. My job is to make sure the administration's playing by the rules just like you do, just like we do, just like the president does. Um, so the legal process will be fluid moving forward, um, but I wouldn't have filed the lawsuit unless I felt we were confident we could prevail. Okay, and, and as far as what might or might not happen in Congress, John, as you see it, what do you think would be, can you envision a compromise that both Republicans and Democrats might be happy with? And what would that be? You know, I, I honestly don't know at this point. I, I do know that there is not going to be what is called, you know, a clean uh, dreamer bill. And I know that there's not going to be what the president set down, you know, a little while ago. Uh, the spirit of bipartisanship appears to be withering on this. So, you know, it remains to be seen. But obviously we're going to have to wrestle with several different layers of immigration. The issue of border security, uh, the issue of a wall, uh, the issue, you know, I find it interesting, some people saying it's ridiculous that we should have 25 billion for a wall, but in 2013, every single Democrat in the United States Senate, including our own Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, voted 46 billion for more border security. It was not, not as clearly defined as a wall, but for more border security. 
So border security is going to be part of it. I think the issue of, call it chain migration, family reunification, and how extensive uh, it will be is going to be part of it. I think that the issue of the diversity visa uh, lottery is coming up for critical review. Uh, I personally think that the most effective uh, tool uh, to manage immigration in this country is using the E-Verify system. You know, E-Verify simply ensures that people who are working in America are here legally. And that the presence of E-Verify would be an added incentive to get DACA, not just the 800,000 DACA recipients, but the 1.8 million dreamers, um, like Carlos, uh, legalized, which frankly I think would be a pretty good idea. So anybody who didn't pass that E-Verify check would, would what, be subject to deportation or? Well, no, they simply would be told if, if you're not in America legally, you can't work in America. I, I, always, I always look at uh, you know, any suggestion for changing immigration law in this country to what would I expect another country to do? Would I find it unreasonable um, if I went to Canada or to Belgium or to France or to Brazil, if I wanted a job there, uh, if I was not in the country legally, would it be unreasonable for them to say, well, you can't work here if you're not here legally? And of, course, no, of course that's not unreasonable. Every, Barbara Jordan, the legendary Democratic uh, Congresswoman, of, uh, first African-American woman elected to Congress, once said, every nation has both the right and the responsibility to manage its immigration uh, for its national interest. And I think that ensuring that people who are legally uh, employed are legally in the country. So let me ask you this, because I think one of the issues that we're having is that uh, underneath all of this, I think there's a fear um, held by many people that um, what's driving these policies isn't a concern with American law, but racism. And for example, President Trump, he's referred to Mexicans as murderers and rapists, and he just, uh, pardon my language, said shithole countries and you know newspapers all over the country had to decide whether or not they were going to actually print those words. And, and so, and even just you mentioned chain migration, even, even that term, that, at least personally, I'd never even heard before this administration. And so I wonder if, if, if you know, if I were going to you know, take what you're saying at face value, that you're concerned about how it was done by uh, former President Barack Obama, um, what is your reaction to, to those kinds of terms used by the president and that kind of, that, the kind of rhetoric that seems to so dominate the landscape right now? Well, let's start with the word unpresidential. Uh, I, I don't think a president should refer to another country uh, in those terms. 
I, I don't think FDR referred to Germany or Japan that way when we were in middle World War II. So, uh, so I, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, but the, the broader question you're, you're asking, uh, we talk about this issue frequently on my show, but most of you know that since you're regular listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and when it comes up, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the stereotype would be that the people who call up and complain are, you know, middle-aged white guys. But I'll, I'll tell you the people who, who are first to complain about illegal immigration, it is usually the spouse or the sibling of a legal immigrant who has played by the rules, who stood in line, and did what was necessary to immigrate here legally, and who thinks that, that people who are cutting the line and are simply being referred to as immigrants um, are basically making them look like suckers because we have a legal process for legal immigration. We have a process for seasonal workers. And when people cut the line and are simply treated as if they are immigrants, that kind of undercuts, it sabotages the, the efforts that legal immigrants make to come here. Some of them, you know, wait in line a long time to come here. And so that's where, that's where the most spirited uh, opposition to illegal immigration comes from. The sense of injustice is, hey, wait, if, if I do things the right way, if I stand in line the right way, why is suddenly someone who ran in front of me uh, being treated as, a, as a peer? If, if I can just if sure. I can add one thing. So uh, I obviously agree with what John had to say about your question about the president's comments. Um, one thing I guess will add to that is that uh, um, two brief thoughts. One, when we announced at the press conference we we're going to file the lawsuit on the rescission of DACA, you know, a comment I made after giving a lot of thought was I said, hey, does anybody really think if the overwhelming majority of dreamers were Caucasian that the president would have taken this action? Hell no, right? Hell no. And, and at the oral argument calling Melody, my attorney, she made that point. So use Norway's example. Hey, if dreamers were all from Norway, do we think we'd be having this conversation right now? Look, I, I, don't, I don't think we would. The other point is that while as frustrating as those comments can be to hear by our president, right, um, for what it's worth, we take those comments and we put them in our briefs that we file with the court. And so that's been helpful on the Muslim ban, one reason we're successful, right? <laughs> And it's been helpful in this case. And the judge in the Eastern District of New York the other day was very receptive to the things we're talking about here being said by the president. What the intent is behind a law when it's created, either an executive order by the president or a law by the state legislature, whatever that is, the intent behind those who write that law and adopt it, that intent matters. And to look at the intent, it's fair game to say what someone has said about it publicly. That's all fair. That's normal part of the judicial process. It's a little unusual we're talking about a president's comments, right, or a president's tweets, but that's fair game in a courtroom. And so to the extent that frustrates you, uh, just know that it does give us ammunition in our cases against the president.
Uh, can I also make a sure, quick comment in terms of uh, like the racism aspect? I think that there is, I mean, regardless of whether someone is undocumented or not, I think that there is, um, the racism still exists there in many ways. And even in our immigration system, I think it's built on just like Band-Aid legislation over like the span of the existence of the United States. And so um, things like Japan, uh, Japanese internment, um, the exclusion of Chinese people here in, in the US, um, and the treatment of Filipino uh, people who came into um, predominantly the West Coast, um, and you know, just all these like different factors we, that should be considered. Um, we really don't talk about those now, but these they are still um, the reason that we are in this issue with immigration. It's so complex because of our history, and in many ways because of our racist history that has allowed all these um, things to exclude certain people uh, out of this country and include others, other ones in. Let me ask you, I mean, um, given uh, the point that John was just making, do you feel uh, like, like there's a division between, say, somebody like yourself who is undocumented and, and others who are, are here, here legally but, you know, of Mexican descent? Have you felt that, that kind of friction that he was referring to? I, I think I see that friction. I think that friction is talked about a lot, but I also see the friction between the good immigrant and bad immigrant narrative, and that's, I think, even worse. It pins people, um, for example, like my parents, who are people, people would blame my parents for me being in the situation, them being in that situation, and really just places the blame on, on them. And if I were, if the DREAM Act were to pass, or if I were to have some form of legal status someday, um, and my parents wouldn't, um, that friction exists even there. Um, and, you know, my parents have always said, like, when I was younger, they would always tell me, like, even if it's just you that, that gets, like, citizenship, or even if it's just you that gets Jacka, like, that's good. And, and for me, that, that makes me feel very, like, there's so much guilt, I think, um, that builds up because we, like, how do I help you? Um, what do I do to help you have what I have now? And get all the opportunities, like, coming to college. How old were you when you found out that you were undocumented? I don't, I think I was really young. I found out that I didn't have a social security number when I was really young because I was trying to open up a bank account when I was like six. <laughs> um, and I asked like my, like my mom or dad and I was like, uh, can I have my social security number? And um, they're like, no, like we just don't have one. I, I didn't understand what that meant at the time. And then over the years, I think it was just kind of like a conversation that we started seeing because of all, um, you know, Bills, to, uh, bills that were introduced in different states, um, in Congress, uh, and you know the bill in Arizona the, uh, that's very anti-immigrant. Um, we started talking about immigration in that context in our family a lot more after after we started seeing that this is really affecting us, and and yeah, it affects us every day. So, and and also back to another point that John was making about, um, you know, I asked him what kind of compromise might Republicans and Democrats be able to make as as, a, as somebody who's undocumented as a, an advocate for immigrants what do you think um, uh, you could live with uh, as far as what Congress did yeah I could definitely live with 100% um, with a clean dream act um, that's what I <laughs> that's what I would be okay with okay so <laughs> Uh, I mean, for, for what it's worth, it's not, I mean, I'll just say, look, I'm not an expert in the ways of Congress and, and all that, right? I will just say that when it comes to 
dreamers, it's that rare issue around immigration where there is as close to unanimity as you can get in our country. 80%, 75%, 85% of Americans support uh, dreamers uh, uh, maintaining their protections. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess what I don't, only observation I guess I can make is what, what I find a little bit frustrating, just as a person, right, now as an attorney general just watching the debate is, so the president essentially, in my view, using dreamers <coughs> as a bargaining chip for something else. When, look, I get when you have contentious issues. I used to be on a county council, right? Wide political spectrums, you have to compromise, right? That's the way it works. But you have to compromise because the people who you represent are divided on something. But when it comes to the issue of dreamers, there's really not division, right? Over, find another issue, right? Where that many Americans agree on any issue related to immigration like they do on dreamers. You can't find it. So, I mean, that, that to me is, there's so much at stake for those 800,000 folks. Um, that is frustrating for me uh, that uh, that they can't get something done um, by March 5th or seemingly can't get something done by March 5th. Yes. Well, and so what's, I mean, and to be fair, I mean, actually, this is one of the few immigration issues that President Trump himself seems conflicted about, right? He said it himself that he wants to, he would like to save the program, but now he's putting it on Congress to solve the problem. Uh, and he was actually pressured by attorney, conservative attorney generals, right, to do something about the program, right? And that's what started this whole thing. Absolutely. It was Republican, that's a really good point, Republican AGs, uh, I think they sent a letter, if I recall correctly, but they, they said they would file a lawsuit uh, to have the protections of DACA rescinded by legal action if the administration didn't do something. So that's, that's exactly right. That did, that was a part of a, that was a key, a key part of this whole, uh, of this whole conversation. But bear in mind, that, that is because it was done by executive action. If, if it had been a bill and it had been signed into law, then the AGs wouldn't have had a legal case to make. Okay. And, and so, John, I mean, what, as you uh, understand it, if they don't act by March 5th, what happens then? Or what are the options left, in, at least in the, in the political world? Well, I think something is, is likely going to happen. The, the reason I, I question whether March 5th is the drop-dead date is because of what we were just talking about. The, the injunction is in place. They can't move to enforce uh, any, any legal action against DACA recipients. Uh, but I think that, you know, the Immigration Reform Act was passed in 1965, and, you know, every half century or so, does a nation good to re-examine its immigration policies? And Carlos has it exactly right. This is a very complex issue in terms of illegal immigration, in terms of legal immigration, the types of legal immigration, the, the types of border security, how you protect your border. One of the things none of us has mentioned yet is that almost half of all the illegal immigrants in America did not walk across the border. They overstayed their visas. And, you know, what are we doing about that? Shouldn't we be placing just as high a priority? And my answer to that is yes, we should. Whether they're here on a business visa, a tourist visa, a student visa, uh, because uh, to get to a point that, that Bob pointed out earlier, the rule of law uh, is paramount. And when you get a visa to come somewhere, it's, it's a contract with the country. 
A country agrees to open its doors to you for a specific purpose for a specific amount of time, and you're expected to honor that deal. And they believe that more than 40% of the illegal immigrants in this country are people who simply blew off uh, the terms of their visa. Well, what if they're blowing it off because there's a civil war in their country or they don't have money or job to go back to and so they're trying to survive in well, this country well that that's another way of saying because they prefer it here to where they're they're from right no, no, they, no. They, she just what well, she just said because they don't have a job to go back to or because she they won't have as uh as good of a life i mean to say that if once you get to america on a on a say a student visa and your employment prospects are brighter in America than they are in Somalia, or that they are in Portugal, or that they you know, may be in Great Britain, uh, that you can just go ahead and stay here, undermines the whole visa program. Can I, can I add something on the, to, to John's comment about sort of a deal, right? And uh, in a slightly different context when it comes to DACA. So for Carlos to become a, a DACA recipient, or for any of the 800,000 folks who become DACA recipients, the first thing you have to do is, this group probably knows, is you have to come out of the shadows, right? You have to tell the federal government who you are, where you live, uh, where you go to school, where you work, who your family members might be. They may or may not be documented. That's the first step. And then you have to meet some criteria beyond that, of course. Now, the federal government of course, made a promise to all those individuals who came out of the shadows. They said, hey, if you come out of the shadows, we will never use that information against you to deport you, right? Pretty straightforward. That, it's a necessary part of the deal, obviously. And in fact, if you go to the federal government's website, they have about DACA, they have a FAQ of frequently asked questions about the DACA program, uh, so folks can review it. And one of the questions is, hey, will this information that I'm providing to you, federal government, ever be used against me to deport me? Answer on the website, no. Uh, on the day that uh, the Attorney General of the United States and the President announced the rescission of DACA, that question and that answer were removed from that website. So, I mean, John does raise an important conversation point, right? A deal's a deal. And we teach that to our kids, right? My nine-year-old kids, my son Jack, if he decides to trade his Pokemon card to his best friend Elliot, and he realizes three days later, oh man, I traded a really valuable Pokemon card for one that's not so valuable, and he comes to me and he says, hey dad, we need to go to Elliot's house to get that card back. What am I going to say? That's not how it works, Jack. You made a deal. You've got to live with that deal. You've got to honor your end of the bargain. It's one of the most basic principles we have as a country. And so, you know, when you mentioned earlier, hey, do I sometimes get emotional about these cases? Yes. I feel that there's so much at stake in all these cases we filed, um, part for the individuals who are impacted, right, like Carlos, but also for who we are as a country, right? That's at stake as well in these cases. And... Uh, and that's part of our case against the federal government is, hey, you made a deal with those dreamers. You have to live by that deal. John, do you want to say any? I mean, do you want to say anything about the, the DACA deal in specific or uh, our, the tradition that we have as a country of, of welcoming people from the outside? Yes. Um, and that is, you know, I am a... Uh, conservative. Uh, I believe in the rule of law. I believe in border security. And I would like to see a DACA bill emerge from Congress so that guys like Carlos can stay here. 
Um, I think that that there's a, you know a strong case to be made that when you are brought to a country as a child and you for all intents and purposes that has been your home country that you have lived in uh, that you've acclimated to that country uh, so I would like to say one thing I'm wondering and and you might know this uh, Bob I don't know how other countries handle this I mean other countries of course, also have people who, who uh, come in without permission and might bring their families, might bring their kids. Do you know any, how any other country handles this? I would not want to weigh in as an expert on those okay. but, at all, yeah. Because uh, I, I think we're in uncharted territory here. I think we might be trying to be the first country to figure out what you do about people who have become adults but who came to a country illegally, so it's, it's not cut and dry, real easy, here's all you need to do. I mean, uh, you're setting, and in this case, making precedent. Carlos, let's, I mean, what are, you, what, are you, what are you going to do if the program is terminated? I mean, have you thought, have you thought about that, about plan B? <laughs> uh, kind of. I, I think about it in two different ways. Uh, for me, I think about it in the sense that I have been undocumented for all of my life, and DACA is no legal status. It's just a form of protection. And yeah, so yeah, I've been undocumented all my life. Um, I will, until I get citizenship or some other form of legal status, I will be undocumented. And that's kind of the perspective that I put myself in. Um, and it's, in many ways, not a good one, um, because there's so much pressure on Unlike me thinking about grad school, um, thinking about uh, finding a home to rent, uh, simple things like even healthcare, things like that become more difficult when you don't have a social security number, when you don't have a driver's license, when you're not authorized to work. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think about it often, but I don't have a plan because I don't know what's gonna happen. And that's the, that's the reason, that's why we need a, a, some comprehensive immigration reform uh, soon because, you know, people are running, uh, people are just losing their protections. People have already lost their employment authorizations. They've already expired. Um, and they can reapply for them now, but it's, they're still in that gap period. And for me, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. And I tell people that all the time. I'm very confident that I don't know what I'm going to be doing. Um, and, and for me, that's been, that's been okay and that's been fine. Uh, but it's terrifying because, because you don't know what you're doing. And so right now, uh, your DACA is good until when? What date exactly? October 28th of this year. Okay. October 28th. I have, that's the expiration. And are, and you are, are you working somewhere right now? Has your company said anything about what they might do if, if it's... I have talked to my company about that. I did tell them that I was undocumented. Um, I'm currently working at a legal, uh, legal office downtown as a legal assistant, and they, I think they show a lot more care towards me because of my, my status and my position. And some of the attorneys have also been very active about, um, you know, going to, there's actually a clinic uh, with like the city of Seattle to help immigrant and like a workshop to help immigrants and, and refugees. And that's, um, I don't know, they've been very friendly, but I, I don't know what they would be, well, like the extent of what they would be willing to do to help protect me um, whether it's keeping my job, but that becomes tricky, tricky because tricky because I 
I won't have my employment authorization anymore. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I've talked to them about, about it, but you know, who knows? No one knows, well, I don't know what they're gonna do. Um, yeah. And is that ultimately what you wanna do? Would you like to go to law school or pursue a legal profession? Is that what you're? Uh, I am looking into law school, but I am looking into other options as well. Um, I'm very interested in politics and international affairs and, and stuff like that, but um, haven't decided yet. And uh, one thing I did decide on is um, planning on volunteering with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps for this next year. Oh, I, I did that for a year, so I, I recommend it. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great program. Yeah, that's great. Okay, sounds like you two should get together. We'll, yeah, we, 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 we were talking before about his future legal career, so we'll, uh, we'll add the Jesuit Volunteer Corps to it. All right, well, we do have, um, I think, uh, a couple questions from the audience. Before we get to that, I wanted uh, Bob to ask you just one more question. Are you planning to run for governor? <laughs> yeah, this, is, uh, this is not the place for that conversation. We, uh, well, we have a governor who I like and admire, and I hope he runs for a third term. I, I love my job. So, uh, yeah, I'll make a decision when it's time to make a decision if I need to. Yeah. It was just the perfect answer, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, we have just a few minutes left. Um, can I just hear from uh, you about what we might look forward to in the next few months? I mean, uh, Bob, what, with the lawsuits, what's the next big thing to happen, do you think? Just in general, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing I've learned from the past year is when I try to predict you know, the next year, the next month, the next day, you know, I'm often wrong, right, as I suspect a lot of us. So I, I guess I don't predict too much. Well, what I can say is that uh, um, I try to be very focused on my role in all of what's going on and, and frankly stay focused on that and limited to that. So my feeling is, to my point at the beginning was, if you'd asked me a year ago, the chances we would file 20 lawsuits against the president at this point, I would have, we would have laughed. Like, truly, that just wasn't even a concept in our head. But if you were to ask me today, hey, Bob, do you think there's a chance you're going to file another 20 this year? I, I can't rule that out, right? I mean, do, do, do I wish we didn't have to do it? You bet, right? But um, I will and my office will squarely confront the administration if we feel they are violating the law. That's just the job description. And um, uh, I guess just... You know, uh, a last point is that um, that you know, we are mindful. I am mindful that when anytime I sue the president, that that's a decision I make, right, on behalf of the people of the state. I'm one of seven kids. Trust me, my family. There's a wide view. There are siblings who listen to this guy right here. I'm sure, right, <laughs> right, on the radio every day. I'm sure of that, right. And I hear about it. I hear about it. So I, I get there's a wide spectrum of views in my family and in this state, okay? Um, so I, we're thoughtful when we bring a case on behalf of the people where I know a lot of people in the state don't support it. Um, so I want folks to know, hey, when I'm looking at filing a lawsuit, I ask three questions. Are Washingtonians being harmed? Do we have good legal arguments? And can I as attorney general bring the lawsuit? Do I have standing to bring it? If the answers to those questions are yes, yes, and yes, then I'm interested. Believe me, there have been plenty of cases, my chief of staff is here, Mike Webb, plenty of cases we talk about where the answer to one of those questions is no or it's not a very strong yes. And we say, you know what? We're passing on that one. I think that's why we've been successful. So do I think another 20 are coming this year? I think it's certainly a possibility, but only if the administration continues on a path of, in our view, look, they have conceded cases after we filed them without even challenging them. 
That's how far off they are in following the law. We file a lawsuit and they say, yep, okay, you got us. We'll do what you're asking us to do. I'm not making that up, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. The first travel ban. We won the trial court, won the Ninth Circuit. They did not appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. They could have. They chose not to. They chose not to for one reason, one reason only. They would have lost. So, you know, do I think the Dreamers case can be a challenging case? You bet. We will not win them all. But uh, when we think we're right, we're going to continue filing. Do you think that's going to be go all the way to the Supreme Court? Could the you... Dreamers, yes. 100%. Yeah, now, when is it going to be right now? We were talking earlier, and this is important to John's point about, hey, is March 4th a true deadline or not? Will the Supreme Court take this case right from the trial court in California without going through the Ninth Circuit? Big question, right? So these cases can move very, very quickly, like the first travel ban, where they're, they're literally decided in a matter of weeks, or they can take months, years. Each one is different, so it's truly impossible to predict how the Dreamers case will play out. But I'd be, I think I'd, I'd be very, very surprised if the Supreme Court did not ultimately weigh in on that case. Okay, and we're actually out of time. Any final thoughts from you, John, or Carlos? Yeah, and it's going to sound a little crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we might actually get a bill because Donald Trump is president. And, and the reason, I mean, picture if, I don't know, Ted Cruz were in the Oval Office. I don't, think, I don't think we'd have a deal. I think Donald Trump wants to make a deal. And if he makes it a priority and he focuses his attention, as he did on the tax bill, and he understands he's going to need some Democratic votes to do it, and he will, uh, then I think he can get there. Now, I think what we're likely going to see is the issue of legal immigration, where you know we have right now a country of origin policy. You know, where are you from? And there is a suggested shift from the country of origin to a skills-based immigration policy, where we don't care what country you're from, but we want people with the following skills because they serve America's interests more. That's another debate for another day. But I would not be surprised if we get some sort of bill in the next 60 days. And Carlos? Yeah, just some final thoughts. I think um, whenever I interviewed with anyone last year or over the course of this last year and had these conversations, I always made it a point to talk about looking at immigration through like a comprehensive intersectional lens. And mainly because we don't talk about like black, Latino, um, undocumented people who, you know, there's a lot of anti-blackness in Latino communities, and uh, I think that that's something that should be addressed when talking about immigration, and also removing, you know, these the dreamer narrative, and also, you know, the perception of immigrants are mostly Mexicans, and and we, we need to talk about so many other things apart from just Mexicans, and also include, um, you know, the indigenous people that we are we're on their land, and I think those conversations all relate to um, the complexities of immigration here in the U.S. Great. I couldn't have said it better myself, so thank you all for coming. <laughs>